Okay, the question I want to uh, consider this morning is whether libertarianism requires uh, widespread acceptance of certain cultural values. And uh, this is something that libertarians have been uh, long divided uh, on uh, across the spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, uh, you have someone like Ayn Rand who thinks that in order to have a free society, you have to have agreement on a fairly specific set of uh, cultural values, uh, that uh, uh, certain uh, views about the nature of reality, of knowledge, and of value have to be fairly widespread in order for, uh, in order for you to have a successful free society. And uh, one of Rand's criticisms of the libertarian movement is that the libertarian movement tries to focus uh, directly on certain political results without uh, uh, incorporating them into their proper broader philosophical context. Uh, on the other hand, you could have the view that libertarianism doesn't really require any particular set of cultural values, that it's equally consistent with uh, any view that doesn't specifically require you to initiate force against people. And Walter Bloch has defended something like this view, that uh, it's, not, it's not part of libertarianism to advocate any other particular set of values. You, know, you can certainly advocate other sets of values, uh, but it's not as a libertarian that doing that is just sort of uh, an extra. And that libertarianism itself is not committed to any particular uh, story about, uh, even about what values make libertarianism true. It's uh, all that libertarianism is committed to is simply the view that uh, people have a right not to have force initiated against them. Well, uh, you know, I'm going to defend uh, a kind of intermediate view, uh, which I call generic universalism and specific uh, pluralism, by which I mean that I think that there's a broad family of values such that uh, a libertarian society is going to need fairly widespread acceptance of values from that set. But by specific pluralism, I mean that it's not the case that you need most people in society to be converted to some very specific version of those values. There can be disagreement on all sorts of things, but there are uh, limits. Uh, now, when I say that a libertarian society is going to need agreement, I obviously don't mean, I say obviously, but people sometimes thought I was meaning that a libertarian society is going to have to require people to have uh, values from this set. Well, no, if they're requiring people to have certain values, it's not libertarianism. So when I say that libertarianism requires this, I don't mean that you, know, you go around and force this by law. I just mean that it's, uh, libertarianism is, for one reason or another, uh, going to need these values. But let me be more explicit about exactly what that means. What exactly does it mean to say that if you're a libertarian, you, uh, you need to favor or advocate or promote certain other values? Well, here I'm going to draw from a, uh, a distinction that Charles has drawn. Uh, between uh, different forms of thickness in the sense of uh, this distinction that some people use between thick and thin libertarianism, where thin libertarianism is that you advocate, uh, you know, libertarianism is just about advocating a particular uh, doctrine like non-aggression, uh, not aggressing against person and property. Whereas going to thick libertarianism, uh, libertarian values are or need to be embedded in some broader framework of values needed to promote uh, the whole package. Um, 
the question of exactly what is meant by libertarianism, uh, Charles draws a uh, distinction among uh, five things that might mean. Uh, so the first one is entailment thickness, and there uh, the, um, the idea is simply that libertarian principles directly entail some value. And this is the sort of thickness that you know, the thin libertarians are generally going to have no problem with. You could wonder whether it's even a form of thickness or not, but just to make sure that we uh, have all the possible meanings on the table so we don't confuse them with each other. Uh, it's just some case where uh, libertarianism directly requires you to, uh, to have some value. Uh, the example Charles gives is that if you're in a culture that practices human sacrifice, or at least involuntary human sacrifice, uh, then uh, adopting libertarianism requires you to give that up. Uh, a different case is application thickness. This is going to be cases where, uh, although the value may not be uh, directly entailed by libertarianism, Unless people have the value, they're going to have a hard time uh, seeing uh, how or why to apply libertarianism. They're not going to understand, uh, you know, even if they accept the principle, they're not going to be able to see how to apply it. So, for example, uh, you know, certain kinds of uh, you know, collectivist ideologies, even though not strictly inconsistent with libertarianism, you could, you know, you could be a collectivist who's simply against promoting collectivism by uh, coercive means. Nevertheless, a certain kind of collectivism make it, might make it very hard for you to recognize taxation, say, uh, or conscription, say, as a form of uh, aggression. In fact, there's a famous Supreme Court case uh, where, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's a case where the, uh, the question of whether um, of whether military conscription counts as involuntary servitude under the 13th Amendment. And the, uh, the court said something like, um, to suggest that the duty to serve your country in, in battle counts as involuntary servitude is absurd on its face. Well, so if someone holds a view like that, they can accept the principle. You can't force, you know, you can't aggress against people, you can't uh, you know, force them to serve you and so forth. But if for some reason you're in the grip of some collectivist ideology that prevents you from seeing that conscription is a form of, uh, of uh, force, uh, then you're going to have trouble applying that principle. Uh, likewise, I was recently having a, an, um, uh, a debate by email with someone who was saying, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything against taxation. So I was saying, well, what about thou shalt not steal? And I said, anyone who thinks that taxation is theft is just, that's just crazy. No one could think that. Well, I mean, you could have some kind of argument that, um, that it's theft, but it's justified. Or you could have some argument that it's not really theft, because in this case, it isn't really the person's property, or it ceases being their property once the government needs it or something. You could run some kind of story, but he wasn't running any kind of story. It's just that he was such an, so in the grip of a certain way of looking at things that couldn't, he couldn't even see how anyone could think that taxation was theft. So, uh, I have a case where you could accept the principle that you know, no one should have uh, things forced on them, you shouldn't force people to do what you want, you shouldn't uh, aggress against people, you shouldn't take their property. You can get lots of people to assent to those principles, but for various ideological reasons, they don't see how they apply. 
You can even get them to assent to the principle that people in government should be bound by the same moral rules as everyone else. A lot of people will happily nod their heads. But you know, they accept the premises, but they just don't see how the conclusion applies. You know, it's pretty easy to find st statements of libertarian justice all over the place. As I mentioned earlier, you know, if you go and look at uh, you know, Justinian's digests, the, uh, you know, the Byzantine uh, collections and codifications of Roman law, if you look at sort of the opening preamble to it, it describes what justice is all about, you know, about uh, giving each uh, his own and protecting people against uh, violence and so forth. Well, you know, it sounds very libertarian, but then you go and you read the rest of the digests and you know, it's clear that they weren't seeing how to apply this. Uh, another uh, version is uh, instrumental thickness. Um, this is a case where uh, unless there's a widespread acceptance of certain values, you're going to have a hard time uh, implementing uh, libertarianism. Uh, it just might not be stable. Uh, because it, it, I mean, in many cases, it's going to be uh, difficult for uh, people to maintain their commitment to libertarianism if there's something else they care about that is going to sorely tempt them to violate libertarian rights. It might not strictly entail that they do, but uh, in a society where uh, people are firmly convinced uh, that the best thing possible is something or other that they suddenly see could be easily brought about just by doing a little coercion, it's going to be uh, hard to uh, resist that temptation. Or likewise, if, um, if you've got a society where uh, people place great stress on values like conformity and obedience and so forth, where there's no strict conflict with libertarianism there. You could embrace values like conformity and obedience and yet nevertheless think, well, I won't obey any commands to violate rights, but I'll you know, obey all the rest of the time and so on. Now, you could do that. It's not, not logically inconsistent, but it's going to be hard for a society to maintain the kind of vigilance you need to prevent government uh, from extending its power or reestablishing itself if you think that, you know, if your main focus is on these values. So it's a little bit different from application thickness. It's, it's related to it. But application thickness is thickness where you accept the principle, but these other values you've got make it hard for you to see how to apply it. In the case of instrumental thickness, people accept the principle, but these other values they have are going to tend to undermine their commitment to the principle. So it's, it's a subtle distinction, um, but they're both there. A different, though again closely related, uh, kind of thickness is grounds thickness. This is a case where so there's some value that is not itself entailed by libertarianism, but that it is entailed by <coughs> perhaps the best reasons for being a libertarianism, for being a libertarian. So for example, suppose that you... Um, you know, suppose that you're uh, a certain kind of environmentalist who thinks that the human race is a cancer upon the earth and that everything would be better if the human race were wiped out. But you're a libertarian and you think, you know, we will not use any coercive methods to wipe out the human race. We will try to persuade people uh, to commit suicide. You know, every member of this group takes a vow that I will commit suicide within 10 years, but during those 10 years I'll do my best to persuade as many other people to also undertake this commitment. So you try to you know, to um, 
bring about a kind of voluntary euthanasia of the entire human race, but you're committed to doing it by strict libertarian means. Or right, that is logically consistent. You could have that, those values and uh, be committed to solely libertarian means of doing it. But it would be odd. Uh, it would be odd uh, to care so much about, um, about respecting people's rights if you think that you know, people, it would be better if people didn't exist than if they did. Now that's going to apply to both the application thickness and, and uh, that's going to apply to both instrumental thickness and grounds thickness. In the case of instrumental thickness, what it means is in a society where most people are convinced that it would be better for the human race to be wiped out, they're going to have trouble having a stable commitment to libertarian values. That would be instrumental thickness. But it's also the case that, uh, and that's sort of a causal worry, that you're going to have a hard time causally keeping libertarianism going if people have these values. But also, uh, this sort of more purely logical point, that uh, even if you don't have the causal worry, you might think it's irrational to be a libertarian if you think that the human race should be better off wiped out. Um, it's not inconsistent, but it just it doesn't make any sense uh, to have such a strong commitment to something if you think the most important value is something that goes completely against it. Uh, it's going to be, you know, so it's not just that it will be unstable, which is the instrumental point, but in some sense it ought to be unstable, which is the grounds point. Uh, then finally there's conjunction thickness, uh, which isn't suggesting any particular connection between the value and uh, libertarianism, but just saying that there's some value in addition to liberty that's also good, and that you should promote both. You might say, well, how is that a kind of thickness? Uh, you know, you know, just as very few uh, thin libertarians are going to deny entailment thickness, so very few thin libertarians are going to deny conjunction thickness. Well, true enough, but nevertheless, you could say, well, look, at least it's going to have this implication. Uh, you, you, know, you don't necessarily want to make common cause with the, uh, the pro-universal uh, death libertarians. Uh, you know, sort of welcome the movement and stand side by side uh, with them. Uh, you know, it's one thing to, you know, certainly it's, it makes sense. You know, you don't want to take sort of the strict Randian position that you shouldn't make alliances with anyone who's, you know, whose uh, values differ from your own. But, you know, if it gets extreme enough, you say, well, look, yeah, yeah, you guys are libertarianism, are libertarians. But you don't want to, uh, you know, if, if what they're advocating is really bad, then you don't want to uh, ally too much with them. And you don't want to start borrowing their arguments. Suppose they come up with some argument that, in fact, you could more efficiently wipe everyone out if you, if you uh, accepted a market. Uh, free market. It doesn't seem obviously true to me, but suppose you, you know, suppose someone comes up with a clever argument like that. We don't want to start using that in your, you know, as part of your argument for libertarianism. Just you know, <laughs> bye bye. So, uh, you know, so certainly it can be possible for uh, people to miss the entailment thickness or conjunction thickness points. But I think it's the other three that are sort of the main things that uh, that I think uh, people might miss. Um, because in all these cases, in application, instrumental, and grounds thickness, in all these cases, it's, it concerns values that uh, you know, are perfectly consistent with libertarianism, uh, 
but nevertheless there's some kind of other conflict. So the idea is that there can be a tension between libertarianism and another value, even if libertarianism doesn't actually entail that that other value is wrong. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it could either that value is going to make it hard to implement, uh, uh, either it's going to make it hard for people to see how to apply their libertarian values, or it's going to make it hard for people to have libertarian values in the first place, or it's going to make it hard uh, uh, to see why you ought to have libertarian values, and, and, and rightfully so. It's just going to uh, make it seem odd. So it seems that there might very well be some values that are going to be uh, are going to be ones that uh, a libertarian, as a libertarian, ought to adopt. Um, you know, just obviously, if you think that people's welfare is of no value, think that people's well-being doesn't matter. Again, it would be very odd to have this kind of commitment uh, to libertarianism. Um, well, so, you know, there are some, you know, fairly straightforward values like rationality and toleration that were well, not strictly entailed by uh, libertarianism, except perhaps in the sense that rationality is entailed by everything uh, in some sense. But there's some things that um, uh, it would be very odd for a, uh, for a libertarian to consistently not care about. Now, Chris Cabrera uh, talks about what he sees as the radical and dialectical aspects of the libertarian tradition. What does he mean by radical and dialectical? Well, by radical, he doesn't just mean thoroughgoing. So it's not just that a radical libertarian is one that's more thoroughgoing, more thoroughly pro-liberty than a non-radical one. And that's certainly one way of using the term radical, and I think it's, it's connected to the meaning he has in mind, too. But he's thinking of radical uh, in the sense, because the word radical is sort of going down to the root. But he thinks that part of the idea of, of radical is seeing that you can't, uh, you can't regard uh, social change as a matter of some merely local fix, where you can make some slight adjustment to keep everything else uh, just the way it is. Uh, the part of uh, the idea of it's being radical is that uh, social change is going to involve change all over the place. That in order to bring about uh, a political change, there have to be economic and cultural changes as well. And I think one reason that someone might want to resist that is they may think, oh, that just makes it sound even harder to uh, bring about libertarianism. Can't we just, you know, get some libertarians elected and and you know they'll they'll fix everything and we're done and uh, if it turns out that, in addition, you have to engage in this, you know, this attempt to change the culture, uh, you know, I think it just seems more daunting. But of course, again, remember that I'm not saying that, and I don't think that uh, Scubera would say that it has to be the kind of thoroughgoing uh, change that, uh, uh, in detail that some Randians have held. And Scubera is a Randian, but he's. Uh, uh, but I don't think he holds a view as extreme as you know, some Randians think that really, you, unless everyone is converted to uh, romanticism in art and uh, and uh, rejects uh, you know, both intrinsicism and subjectivism and value theory and various things, unless they you know, hold a, you know, a bunch of uh, fairly specific values that uh, you're not going to be able to implement uh, uh, liberty.
uh, you're not going to be able to, or it's not going to be worth doing, or whatever. Um, but uh, it's not necessarily anything that specific. Uh, with regard to the notion of dialectical, well, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of people associate the term dialectical with Marx, as does Scabera, but uh, Scabera thinks that a number of libertarian thinkers can also be uh, found in this tradition. In fact, his first book, uh, which is on Marx and Hayek, argues that Hayek actually does a better job of implementing the dialectical method that Marx recommends. He thinks that Marx rec recommends a dialectical method, but doesn't actually follow through with it. So what's a dialectical method? Um, well, part, part of the idea of it is uh, attention to context, not ripping things out of context, not thinking you can understand something all by itself apart from its, its broader relations. Uh, if you try to rip something out of context, you get sort of a, a fragmentary abstraction that doesn't really capture uh, the nature of the whole. And so if you try to focus on, on political relations as if they were just matters of what politicians are doing, you don't see how what politicians are able to do is supported by economic factors and by cultural factors and so on. Uh, or if you just focus on some cultural factor and you ignore the way in which that's influenced by economics and politics. Uh, then you are being undialectical. Um, so, uh, for Scabera, this notion of radical, this notion of dialectical go together. If uh, you, ha you, you have to understand something in terms of its relationship to a broader whole, in terms of its relationships to other things. Now, Scabera warns against you know, trying to extend this too far to you get to some sort of Hegelian uh, picture where say Hegelian, although it's, it's not clear whether Hegel is necessarily guilty of this, but um, some sort of quasi-Hegelian picture where you can't understand the nature of this glass unless you understand the nature of uh, the history of the Byzantine Empire or something, where everything is, <laughs> is, uh, you know, is, is internally connected to everything else. And so uh, you can't understand anything without somehow being omniscient. Um, uh, I think so, you know, there's always a danger of falling into that sort of view. And... Uh, you know, that's not what he's saying, uh, but he's saying that you should always be alert for uh, context. And he thinks that uh, the those versions of libertarianism that have had this kind of alertness to context uh, are the ones he favors, and ones that he thinks uh, have not had this kind of alertness to context are ones that he, uh, to some extent, criticizes. Um, so he thinks that there's this interaction among political, economic, psychological, cultural factors. Well, I want to connect this with uh, the 19th century libertarians. And I have in mind, on the one hand, uh, classical liberals like uh, Herbert Spencer, and on the other hand, um, individualist anarchists like uh, Benjamin Tucker. Uh, these are people who uh, likewise thought that state oppression was part of an interlocking system with non-state forms of oppression. And I'll say in a minute what I mean by non-state forms of oppression, but they thought, for example, there were racial, sexual, and managerial non-state forms of oppression. Before I explain non-state forms of oppression, let me first explain what I mean by interlocking system. Well, you could have the view that some of these things just go one way. So you could say, you know, there are these bad things in society, but they're all, they're all caused by something the state is doing. And if you could just stop a state from doing these things, then these bad things in society would completely vanish. Um, 
And I think, you know, libertarians sometimes think that, and I think it's, it's often true about many things. It's not necessarily true about everything. Um, on the other hand, you could think that these things, or these bad things in society are completely independent of what the state is doing. Uh, and yeah. I think you know, sometimes that's true too, but often it's not. Often it's the case that there'll be you know, bad features of society that draw some of their strength from what the state is doing, but they also have some independent strength. And that likewise, these reinforce what the state is doing. So the state is partly enabled by the existence of these, these economic and cultural factors. It, it's better enabled to do what it's doing. So the state depends to some extent on these other things, but it doesn't depend solely on them. So they're not so mutually dependent that if you zapped one, the other one instantly poof, out of existence. Um, but on the other hand, they're not so independent that if you could zap one, the other one would stand unchanged. Uh, it's uh, more of a mutual determination, but each one has some nature of its own. Well, uh, if you accept um, these notions of application and instrumental and grounds thickness, it seems that uh, you're going to be uh, led to embrace uh, of the value of having generally an aversion to dependence and conformity. Now again, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing directly inconsistent between libertarianism on the one hand and the values of dependence and conformity on the other. You could have the view that, uh, you know, that we, should, you know, we should all be timid conformists and we should all uh, depend on some sort of uh, authority, but that it should all be done through non of means. But uh, I think that there's, you know, there's application, instrumental, and grounds conflict uh, in all these cases. If you embrace these values of dependence and conformity, you're going to have a hard time remaining committed to libertarian values. You're going to have a hard time seeing how to apply them. And it's not going to be clear that you, you know, that it would make sense to be committed to libertarian values if, if these other values really are genuinely valuable. Likewise, uh, it seems that libertarianism tends to favor an aversion to some people having a dominant say over other people's lives. Now again, there's no uh, direct conflict there. Uh, there, are, there are cases where one person can have a dominant say over another person's life, but in a way that does not strictly violate any libertarian rights, and that therefore it's a way that should not be combated by force. But uh, you, know, you might still think it's something bad, but you might not. You might think, you know, it's, it's bad when authority is backed up by force, but as long as the authority is merely backed up by economic pressure and things like that, it's just fine and dandy. Well, I mean, that's a consistent view, but it, uh, I think it's going to be unstable, both causally and conceptually. It's going to be hard for people to, uh, for society to, to maintain a commitment to uh, libertarian values, or they don't see anything wrong with dependence and conformity. It's also going to be easier for these non-state forms of authority to become or give rise to state forms of authority or violent forms of authority uh, if, um, uh, if people generally don't have objection to them. And also, on sort of the ground sickness point, it would be odd for you to think it's so important for people to be free from uh, government control, and yet think that other forms of people having a dominant say over people's lives is, you know, is completely unobjectionable. Yeah, it's consistent, but it's, 
uh, it's sort of odd. Part of the reason people find libertarianism attractive is they don't like being pushed around and told what to do. But, you know, being literally compelled by force isn't the only way of being pushed around and compelled what to do. Now, sometimes libertarians resist the notion that we should care about forms of being pushed around other than uh, actual uh, violence or coercion or aggression. Because they think that if you care about those, that means you have to be committed to using state or violent means of combating them. But of course, that doesn't follow either. You could think that, that uh, violent forms of oppression commit by violence and nonviolent forms of oppression commit with something else. Uh, now, uh, see, people sometimes say that libertarianism doesn't include any of the reasons, either the economic or the philosophical reasons uh, that are being offered in favor of non-aggression. Libertarianism simply includes the non-aggression principle and whatever it entails, but it doesn't include the reasons for accepting the non-aggression principle. Um, I think Walter Block holds that, although uh, yesterday I said Stephen Kinsella holds something and I got an email from him uh, saying, well, that's not precisely what I hold. So I don't know whether, you know, so uh, all my attributions should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm relying on, on the murky contents of my memory. Uh, but anyway, some libertarians do uh, hold that uh, none of the arguments for, for the non-aggression principle are themselves part of libertarianism. And I think I understand why they say this, because they're thinking, well, look, if you say that the arguments for the non-aggression principle, that any particular argument for the non-aggression principle is part of libertarianism, then you're going to have to say that someone isn't a libertarian unless they hold the principle for that reason. And that does seem like the, uh, uh, like the wrong thing to say. We don't want to deny that someone is a libertarian simply because their argument for libertarianism is, is utilitarian when we're not utilitarians, or it's not utilitarian when we are, or whatever. But there would be something odd if you want to say that really all there is to libertarianism is just the non-aggression principle and what it directly entails, and not any of the ethical or, or economic arguments for it. Because that means that most of what we think of as libertarian literature is not actually you know, part of libertarianism at all. Uh, you know, we've got these thick volumes of human action and man, economy, and state, and so forth, and you thought that was part of the literature of libertarianism. Um, but, you know, you know, if, for example, uh, you know, I mean, you, you could say, well, look, isn't someone a libertarian if they think, if they hold the economic view that freedom would cause poverty, but they're in favor of poverty? Suppose I think, you know, there'd be mass impoverishment if libertarianism were enacted, but I'm in favor of mass impoverishment, and therefore, uh, you know, would someone like that be a libertarian? Yes. You know, they're not, uh, you know, probably not the ones that we should. You know, we should invite onto our lecture circuit, but um, they would be libertarians. And so you could say, all right, well, that shows that you know, free market economics is not part of libertarianism. Well, uh, I, I would say that libertarianism is a body of thought, and I think it that libertarianism as a body of thought includes you know, all the major arguments that have been made for it. Some of those arguments may contradict each other, but uh, there's a difference between saying that something is a, is a part of libertarianism and saying it's an essential part. You know, I think you, non-aggression is a central part of libertarianism. Maybe some of the arguments that are offered for it are not essential. 
But something can be part of you without being an essential part. Um, you know, if I've, if I've got a tumor, that tumor is part of me. It's just not an essential part of me. Um, you know, so I'd be willing to say that libertarianism is, you know, it's a historical doctrine that has an essential core. An essential core is in some sense ahistorical. Nothing at any time or place could count as libertarianism if it didn't have the central core. But in its historical contingency, it also has these, these other things, some of which may be good, some of which may be, may be bad, some of which we may be sort of more libertarian and others less so, just in the sense that they cohere better with libertarianism than other things. So uh, I think that uh, you know, the major works of libertarianism count as being part of libertarianism. Now, I think that there are two kinds of mistakes that people can make about non-state or more broadly non-initiatory force forms of oppression. And uh, it's worth saying that those aren't the same things either. After all, there may be forms of oppression that are, that are violent and are actually violations of libertarian rights that are not by the state. You know, violence uh, can occur outside uh, the state. So, for example, if, uh, if domestic violence against women, if you think that's part of what uh, sustains uh, you know, uh, certain kind of uh, social inequality between men and women, well, that's not uh, by itself a state form of oppression, but it is a non-initiatory force. I mean, it is an initiatory force form of oppression. But I want to talk about what things that are neither state nor initiatory force forms of oppression, uh, although I think those, those things are often closely linked in interesting ways with the, the other kind. But I think there are there's an error that tempts statists, and then there's a related error that tempts libertarians. The error that tempts statists is to say, well, first of all, any form of oppression is a rights violation. If I'm oppressing you, then I'm violating your rights. Let's take that as the first premise. Second premise is to say, look, there are non-initiatory force forms of oppression. There are lots of power relations in society that don't actually depend on, on uh, anybody using violence. Uh, well, therefore, there are rights violations, the conclusion would go, that do not involve the initiation of force. And then from that, it's a short step to saying, therefore, uh, uh, the law should do more than simply protect people's libertarian rights. The law should also protect these other rights, rights not just rights against being aggressed against, but rights against these other nonviolent forms of oppression. And once you do that, then you're well on the way to endorsing all kinds of government programs. Uh, now, there's, what I, uh, there's a different argument that I think tempts libertarians, but I think is also erroneous. This starts with the same first premise. All forms of oppression are rights violations. And it says, look, there's no such thing as a rights violation that doesn't involve the initiation of force. And they appeal to you know, standard libertarian arguments uh, as to how you've got the right to do whatever you want as long as you're initiate, not initiating force against anyone else. Um, and from those premises, the conclusion follows that there are no forms of oppression that don't involve the initiation of force. Well, I think both these arguments are mistaken. And I think they're mistaken in the same place. They're mistaken in the first premise. Uh, once you identify oppression with a particular form of oppression, namely oppression that involves violence, then you're going, then that sort of forces you either to want to treat all power relations on the same model as violent ones, 
uh, and therefore you know, start wanting legal control over all sorts of things, uh, or else you just want to deny the existence of them. But I think that if you deny the first premise, then you can easily recognize the existence of non-state forms of oppression or non-violent forms of oppression without thinking they're rights violations and without thinking that, uh, therefore, without thinking that these are things that should be combated by force of law. Now again, some people are going to say uh, that uh, that would be an odd position to hold because they'll say, well, look, if you hold this, if you hold the view that there are forms of oppression, genuine serious forms of oppression, that are not violations of libertarian rights and therefore that cannot be combated by law, then you're saying we've got a problem and we're not allowed to solve it. Uh, you know, it seems as though it might be much more attractive to say either, yes, these forms of oppression are a problem, but we are allowed to solve it because we can make more things illegal than just aggression, and so we can have lots of government programs. Or, on the other hand, to say, uh, you know, that would be a problem if they existed, but we're not allowed to solve problems like that, and therefore it's much more comforting to think that they don't exist. <laughs> However, I think that this, uh, you know, this conclusion seems, this argument seems to rest on an unlibertarian premise, namely the premise that uh, the only way to solve serious problems is through the use of force. Now, it's no surprise that statists would think that. That's the sort of thing statists think. But you know, it seems as though libertarians have good reason to think otherwise. And part of libertarian social theory is precisely to show that violent solutions are much less effective and voluntary solutions are much more effective than we thought. And that's what a lot of libertarian social and economic analysis is devoted to showing. Showing that, uh, that government works less well than you might have thought and that uh, private solutions, market solutions, voluntary solutions work better than you might have thought. All right, well, what, uh, what implications might this have? Well, let's take the case of uh, the workplace. Uh, case of um, uh, what someone might want to call oppression there. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, let's just say, you know, being pushed around, being given lots of stupid arbitrary commands, having your life made unpleasant, and we know that this is a pervasive feature of uh, the workplace. Uh, one reason that the, uh, that the cartoon strip Dilbert is so popular is because it's so familiar. That's what life in the workplace is often like. Not always, but often. Often uh, you have these petty tyrannical rules that make no sense being imposed on you. Now, sometimes libertarians want to resist that, uh, that idea because they think, you know, they think either this would, if that exists, that would show that the market doesn't work and... As libertarians, you don't want to say that, or you think it means that the uh, that you're asking uh, the government to step in and do something about it, and we don't want to do that. But uh, it doesn't necessarily have either of those implications. You know, for one thing, uh, a, a libertarian can think, and I think there are good libertarian reasons for thinking that partly, not entirely, but in large part. The situation depends in various ways on, uh, on government intervention. Uh, as I was saying, um, I think it was yesterday, the, uh, you know, the, more that, uh, the more that government regulation intervenes in ways that, uh, that uh, systematically benefit employers at the expense of employees, the more this sort of thing is likely to happen. 
For example, if you pass regulations that make it harder for poor people to start their own businesses, because you have all these regulatory hoops they have to jump through. I mean, a perfect example would be uh, a taxi service. Uh, taxi service is an ideal uh, form of work for a person that doesn't have much capital to get into, because it doesn't acquire a lot of capital. Uh, you know, you need a car and a phone. Um, but a lot of places where uh, a license to start a taxi company costs $100,000, which a lot of poor people don't have handy lying around. Um, well, that makes it easier to start a taxi service if you're rich than if you're poor. But likewise, lots of things. Licensing. There are lots of cases where you can't start doing something unless you get a license. You can't get a license unless you take a course of a certain kind, and the course is often very expensive. Then the license fee is expensive. I mean, another perfect example is uh, hair braiding services in the inner city. Um, uh, a lot of uh, people offering those services have been shut down by the government on the grounds that you can't offer hair braiding services unless you have a license as a hairdresser. You can't, uh, uh, you can't get a license as a hairdresser unless you take a hairdressing course, which includes not only hair braiding, but lots of other things that they actually weren't especially interested in doing. And that costs money, and then the license costs money, and so on. Um, in Louisiana, you can't be a florist unless you have a license, because God forbid that you should get a flower arrangement from an unlicensed florist. It might explode. Uh, and of course, in Louisiana, the, um, at least this was a story like a, a year or so ago. I don't know whether anything's changed since. The story was that the, in order to pass the very demanding uh, floral arrangement test, uh, you, know, it was, you had to, to pass that in order to get the license. And it turns out to be very difficult to pass that because the judges, as to whether you succeeded or failed in passing the flower arrangement test, are existing florists. So the florists are in charge of licensing their competition. And that's why it turns out to be such a gruelingly difficult task to figure out how to arrange uh, flowers in Louisiana. Um, maybe they're made of matter and antimatter or something. You know, to, you've got to arrange them just right or... Oh, you blow up uh, half the state. Um, well, so that's so the harder it is to start your own business, the more you have, you know, the more you're forced to uh, to work for someone else, and so that obviously you know, makes it harder for you, you know, to quit your job. Likewise, the less competition there is among employers, the harder it is uh, for you to to uh, quit your job. So anything that slows down the economy, anything that makes it harder to start new businesses, and so forth. That's obviously going to uh, uh, make it harder for uh, workers to quit their job. And uh, you know, that, in turn, um, uh, means that employers can get away with, you know, with more irrational behavior and more abusive treatment and so forth. Um, now, the status solution is, you know, to keep all those laws in place, but to bring in other laws that are supposed to uh, restrict the, uh, the employer's options. And, uh, and so you get you know, some laws oppressing uh, employers, you get other laws oppressing employees, and then each side says that the other side is doing more oppressing. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, um, there are better ways than that. So, anyway, so what I want to say is that um, you know, some of this oppression in the workplace uh, depends on government intervention. Um, but I don't think it all does. Uh, and for one reason, uh, we think about uh, we think about things like uh, the optimal size of firms. And I think this is a good illustration both 
of how government is partly responsible for the problem and an example of how it's not completely so. Uh, in the size of a firm, there are both economies of scale and diseconomies of scale. Um, you know, you know, up to a certain limit, uh, companies can get bigger and become more efficient uh, by getting bigger. Uh, you know, big factory can make a, you know, a thousand of something uh, for less than a thousand times as much as you know, a small factory can make a hundred of them. But there are also diseconomies of scale, and one uh, and one reason for the diseconomies of scale is uh, Mises' socialist calculation argument. Uh, Mises showed that when you depart too far from a price system, you have no rational means of allocating uh, resources. Well, that's true in a state socialist economy, but also to some extent true in a corporation. I mean, it's not the, the fact that the state socialist economy is coercive is not the decisive fact there. Because if you can imagine a voluntarily formed cooperation, corporation that would be the size of Soviet Russia. Uh, and uh, you know, although it might not have been established by violence, still you'd have, um, you'd still have uh, you know, very much the same kind of calculational problems. Uh, you, know, you have you know, certain things you have to allocate to, to one department, certain resources you have to allocate to the other, and how much of which should you do for the same familiar reasons that uh, you run into problems with the, um, uh, with, the, uh, with the state. You also run into problems with the uh, corporation. I could say, well, yeah, but the corporation has external market signals. Well, so did the Soviet Union. And it's because of the external market signals the Soviet Union had that it was able to survive as well as it did. If the Soviet Union had covered the entire globe, it would have melted down much more quickly. Um, not that the Soviet Union ever entirely succeeded in abolishing market relations internally either. In fact, uh, to some extent, uh, you know, the black market may have been all that enabled it to survive. But nevertheless, uh, the constraints on bureaucratic growth, the, uh, the constraints on on uh, non-market allocation apply as much within firms as uh, within the state. Therefore, uh, under a market system, you'd naturally expect that, um, that firms would uh, increase, to tend to increase so long as the economies of scale offset the diseconomies of scale. And when they get to the point when uh, diseconomies of scale start setting in, then it'd be much harder for them to increase in size beyond that point. They'd, uh, they tend to start competing less well once they reach that sort of size, and then they have to scale back. However, anything that government does to insulate a firm from competition will encourage it to grow beyond its optimum efficient size. Um, so in taxes, regulations, and cartelization, and monopoly privileges, and subsidies, and anything that, that uh, makes it harder to compete uh, against a firm is going to make it tend to grow beyond its uh, beyond the point of its efficiency, and so um, that is certainly uh, a case where government intervention uh, is relevant to explaining uh, this sort of power. However, I think that there's also a uh, a sense in which there would be room for a certain kind of problem without government intervention. Uh, people sometimes say. Well, look, uh, you're never going to have the problem of, of uh, you know, in a free market, you're never going to have the problem of systematic discrimination or systematic underpayment and that sort of thing of employees. 
because uh, employees' wages are going to be determined by their, uh, their marginal revenue productivity. And uh, if one employee is more productive than another, then you're going to have an economic incentive to pay them more. And if you don't, then you're going to get, you know, you're going to get zapped by competition. Well, I think that what that ignores is that uh, within a firm, the market signals don't generally come in and point to some particular employee. The market signals tell you that your firm as a whole is doing something right or something wrong. Um, but they don't, you know, they, they don't tell you exactly which of your employees are more productive and which ones aren't. Now, you know, you can, you know, you can experiment, but you know, you can't try to serve every different possible combination and move all your employees around. Because doing all that would have effects on their productivity too. Uh, so, employers often have to go on their best guess as to who's more productive and who's not, and um, and their guess might be influenced by. You know, racial bias, or gender bias, or cultural bias, or uh, you know, who knows what. Also, of course, it's not the case that you know every inefficiency is immediately uh, directly punished by the market. If you're a, a boss, uh, you know you will spend some of your revenue in consumption goods. You might you know, have your uh, you know, a fancy carpet for your office, and so on. And you know nothing wrong with that. Uh, you don't expect uh, you know, all the people working in in the firm to you know, huddle in, in little hovels, but the fact that you, that, uh, you can afford some consumption goods, well, certain kinds of discrimination could be your consumption good. And, and as long as you don't do so much of it that you wreck your company's productivity, um, there's, you know, there's, because you, firms are not sort of instantly zapped every time they depart from maximum market efficiency, uh, you know, there are room for various kinds of adverse power relations uh, within the firm that the market will not automatically correct. Uh, I, I don't think the solution is, oh, we have to uh, bring in the government, particularly because I don't think the government's going to be uh, a very efficient solution. Oh, we've got this hierarchical and oppressive system here, so let's bring in this other, much more hierarchical and oppressive system to fix it. Um, well, it just doesn't seem... Uh, very plausible. And it's like, you know, taking one poison to drive out another. So, uh, uh, there's going to be room for, you know, building, uh, you know, certain kinds of institutional structures. Um, you know, you could say unions, but what I have in mind by unions is not exactly the sorts of things that uh, pass as unions today, which I think partly for reasons of governmental intervention, and partly uh, for various sorts of cultural reasons and economic reasons, um, uh, have you know, largely become co-opted into the state apparatus. But various sorts of mutual aid among workers, various sorts of cultural things that make it easier for, uh, you know, for workers to cooperate with each other, make them uh, more willing to resist certain kinds of things, make employers more embarrassed at requiring certain kinds of things. So it's sort of a combination of economic and cultural and uh, ideological movement. And that's why I think uh, a lot of these uh, 19th century libertarians saw themselves as part of the labor movement, although they were sort of, to some extent, oddball members of the labor movement compared to sort of some of the other uh, folks who, who had uh, sort of more authoritarian plans in mind. Uh, 
Now, uh, Spencer draws a nice distinction between uh, three kinds of other regarding virtue. I think it's, uh, it may not be sort of as, as nuanced and rich as something like Aristotle's list of the virtues, but I think you can combine it with that. Spencer distinguishes between justice, negative beneficence, and positive beneficence. So justice is not violating people's rights. Negative beneficence is not harming people, where that's a different concept. It's one of the reasons I like Spencer more than Mill. Mill was kind of shaky on the difference between not violating people's rights and not harming them. I think that Mill sometimes grasped the distinction, but other times uh, not, not as well. There are lots of ways you can harm people that don't violate their rights. Um, lots of ways you can make people worse off. And then positive beneficence is, is offering people positive help. Now, uh, I think these um, uh, these virtues involve different sorts of requirements. For example, uh, you know, justice is a fairly absolute prohibition on aggressing against people. But anyway, negative beneficence, I think, is not going to have a prohibition on harming people. It's going to have a prohibition on harming people wrongly. But there are lots of cases where, if by harming you just mean making someone worse off, there are lots of cases where you can legitimately make someone worse off. Um, you know, if, if two people want to marry the same person, and the person marries one of them, the person in some sense makes the other one worse off. Now, it makes them worse off in a way that they, you know, can indirectly endorse from the agent neutral standpoint and so forth, but nevertheless, you know, they are worse off. Uh, so not all makings worse off. Uh, so the, I think the, the, what negative beneficence requires is weaker than what justice requires. Justice is, you know, no rights violating ever. Negative beneficence requires something weaker. It doesn't say no harms ever, but it says, you know, try to avoid uh, harms you can. I think positive beneficence is, is still weaker. I think that we have a duty to help other people. It would be odd if we didn't. Uh, it would be odd that people's interests matter so much that we should not you know, steal even a penny from them, and yet so little that we shouldn't, you know, that we don't, we're not obligated to throw them a rope if they're falling into a well. Now, again, when I say obligated to help them, I don't mean that we should be forced to help them, because that would be a violation of justice, but that we ought to help them. But again, I think that's going to be weaker than negative beneficence in the sense that uh, the number of harms you ought to refrain from is probably greater than the number of cases where you ought to help people. Uh, you can't help, you know, you, you can't help as many people as uh, you possibly could, or you just have to spend every waking hour helping people. It's much easier to avoid harming people than it is to actually give them positive help. So I think that uh, positive beneficence is not as demanding as negative beneficence. Negative beneficence is not as demanding as justice. But I think it's a mistake to think that the, this difference is based on the seriousness of these things. People sometimes think, uh, not just libertarians, I'll think libertarians too, often think that uh, the reason justice is more demanding is that it's more important uh, or that it's worse to violate rights than it is to harm in another way, or that it's worse to harm than it is to fail to benefit. Well, I think it's often going to be true, uh, especially if you think of some of the, sort of the paradigm cases. But not always. Suppose I spend years systematically undermining your confidence, systematically uh, you know, tearing away at your self-confidence, 
in, in subtle ways so that you become less and less sure what you should do, you gradually become more and more dependent on me, you, you don't go and seek the career you want to because I sort of subtly convince you that you'd be no good at it, and gradually you, you become sort of my, you know, my cringing, fawning uh, uh, servant. But I haven't violated your rights, but I've you know, done some bad stuff. Suppose on the other hand that I go into Kroger and I steal a grape. Well, stealing a grape is a rights violation. Uh, systematically undermining your confidence is not. But it seems that this, this story of this non-rights violating thing I did is much worse than stealing the grape. I think the, the reason people often want to think the reverse is they tend to think that if you think it's worse, then you think it's more justified to use force to stop it. But I think that's a, a mistake. The, the wrongness of using force uh, against an evil is not because the evil is not so serious. It's not as though, well, well, anything that doesn't involve force is, is not that important. Uh, but, uh, you know, the reason that you should have the right to force me not to steal a grape, or you shouldn't have the right to force me to do this other thing, isn't because stealing a grape is really, really important and everyone isn't, but rather because stealing a grape is itself an act of force. By stealing a grape, I am you know, forcing my way into the rights boundary of whoever runs Kroger, actually. If I, if I look more closely into the title of Kroger, it might become very murky, but I assume an ideal Kroger. Um, I forced my way into the, uh, the rights boundary of Kroger, and you know, so it's legitimate for them to force me out again. Whereas in the case where I systematically undermine your self-esteem, I haven't forced my way anywhere, and so you're not justified in uh, forcing me out. Uh, now, I think that also there are consequentialist reasons for uh, dealing with force by for means of force and dealing with non-force evils by means of non-force. But I think that even apart from consequentialist reasons, there's um, you know, there's just this kind of a, a symmetry. It's not that we should um, that we should meet force. Uh, it's it's not that the reason we should ban certain things by force is because they're so evil. Um, it's just that we should evils that involve force should be met with force, and evils that involve, don't involve force should be fought with other methods. Now. As I said, I think it's not just libertarians that sometimes make this mistake. I don't think libertarians ever make this. I don't think libertarians very often make this mistake sort of fully or thoroughly. I mean, I think most libertarians, if if pressed, have been uh, will say, well, of course there are wrong things other than um, uh, other than using force. People often accuse Walter of having the view that nothing is wrong other than the initiation of force. And that's not true. Uh, you know, if you ask me, he'll definitely say, of course there are wrong things other than force. So I'm not saying that libertarians are ever likely to make that mistake in sort of a thoroughgoing way, but nevertheless, you'll find throughout libertarian literature phrases like, well, there's nothing wrong with it so long as it doesn't involve force or so long as it doesn't involve the state. And if you press them, they'll say, well, what they mean by nothing wrong with it is nothing rights violating. That's fine. But sort of the flavor of the tone suggests that they're you know, tending, you know, tending to sort of emphasize the importance of rights violations to the, uh, and not other things. And you have to say, well, you know, it can be misleading to use the phrase, there's nothing wrong with it as long as it doesn't involve force, because there are lots of things that uh, there's nothing wrong with in that, in the sense of nothing unjust, but nevertheless might be very wrong. And it certainly can sound to people as though we are indifferent to all sorts of evils if we think that, uh, we say things like there's nothing wrong with them. But statists also make this mistake. I think statists, you know, often make it much more thoroughly. Statists often think 
that uh, to say that you don't want to deal with something by force just is to say that you don't think it's important. And so statists think that anything that's important is something they want to deal with by force. Uh, and since they rightly think that lots and lots of things are important, they you know, quite naturally draw the horrendous conclusion that uh, you know, government force should be sort of all pervasive uh, in our lives. Every time there's a, a problem, violence is the solution. Uh, though for reasons of, I think, application thickness, they often don't recognize themselves as people who are saying that violence is the solution. Uh, and most statists would, you know, would think that would think that uh, they're against violence, but they uh, have trouble seeing state violence as violence because they've, you know, they've accepted this sort of a, uh, an incantational picture of the state, where when the state decrees something, it just happens. And of course, they know in principle it happens because people are forcing it, but they have this idea that somehow things happen if the state says so, and it's just sort of random if things happen without the state saying so. Uh, and so... Uh, statists often want to know, well, what guarantees that this would happen without the state? And so the state saying something guarantees it. Um, yeah. you know, there are lots of things the state would like to guarantee but can't manage to do. Um, you know, so of course, statists think that, you know, have great faith in violent methods and very little faith in nonviolent methods. And so, uh, of course, from their point of view, a serious evil should be fought with force, whether it's an evil that involves force or not. Uh, if you really care about some problem, if you really think it's worth addressing, then you need to address it uh, by uh, prohibitive means. But if you're a libertarian, you think, well, you know, you have uh, you know, greater faith in, um, uh, in um, voluntary means. Of course, then there's a question of exactly what voluntary means means. Voluntary means means. Because um, on the one hand, you might think, well, by voluntary means, you mean the market. The market, you, by the market, you mean sort of the sum total of voluntary human interaction. But then you could think, in the, by market, we mean buying and selling. But I think there's, you know, there's sort of a broad and a narrow sense of the market, and we need to be careful not to confuse them. There's a broad sense in which the market just means the entire range of voluntary transactions, anything that doesn't involve shoving people. And there's a narrow sense in which, by the market, we mean... Uh, uh, voluntary exchange and the uh, cash exchange or prices or you know commercial transactions, and then somehow comes the danger is that that non-coercive but organized and in some sense political modes of organization uh, become invisible. I mean, there's this, there's a um, uh, there's an old joke. Uh, well, I don't know. It's probably not that old, but. Anyway, well, it goes back to the last century. Uh, as a joke, how many libertarians does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none. The market will take care of it. <laughs> well, there's certainly something right about that. Uh, libertarians understand uh, the power of invisible hand solutions. They understand that there are lots of things that will, there are lots of good results that will be brought about without anyone consciously aiming at them, so long as you simply let, let, let people freely interact. And that's something the statists have a very hard time understanding. Uh, and so it's certainly appropriate for libertarians to sort of specialize in pointing out that there are uh, these ways of bringing about uh, results that don't involve consciously aiming at things, uh, but simply allowing them to arise through spontaneous order. Uh, 
However, uh, focusing on that very important insight can sometimes blind us to another important insight, which is that uh, uh, invisible hands are not the only hands in the market. There are visible hands too, namely ours. And that not everything we do is in the market, not everything we bring about is the result of you know, simply letting market forces operate and let them bring about uh, results that were no part of our intention. That's an important aspect of the market. But another important aspect of the market is entrepreneurship. Another important aspect of the market is that we see a need and we consciously go out and intend to fill it. Um, now, uh, you know, Hayek is famous for emphasizing this idea that um, uh, that we shouldn't think that all order in society has to be the product of rational planning. And he's absolutely right about that. But it doesn't follow. And I don't think that Hayek intends to infer, although I think that you know, Rothbard takes to Hayek to task for thinking that sort of everything just happens sort of robotically and no one plans anything. I think Rothbard is a little too harsh on Hayek, but I think he's on to something. There is certainly a danger of focusing on that aspect that Hayek also had such good insight into, but focusing on that to the extent of, of downgrading this other, this other side of things. Uh, rational planning, rational coordination of people consciously getting together and, and trying to do things, um, you know, that's not unlibertarian. That's not unmarket. Uh, after all, we're, we're not against the firm. Uh, we're not against there being such things as firms, and firms precisely are people uh, rationally coordinating. Of course, you could say, well, they're rationally coordinating to bring about profit to themselves. They're not rationally coordinating to bring about social goals. Well, maybe not, but what about the libertarian movement? You know, the libertarian movement is, uh, you know, is not uh, primarily about you know, trying to make libertarians richer. Um, ah, the drum set is back. <laughs> Can you make a guitar next time? <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. Your faith that this is going to stop? Imagine what, what it looks like in there. Okay, before I was about to make a, a quip when it stopped, but now I'm afraid to make the quip since that Don't was make what's, mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, think about the libertarian movement. The libertarian movement is not a movement of people who are hoping that 
that liberty will emerge without anyone aiming at it. We're all aiming at it. Uh, you know, we're not, a uh, libertarian movement is not primarily about uh, trying to bring out our own personal profit. There might be other uh, more efficient ways of, uh, of doing that. So libertarian movement is not something we're just letting the market take care of. Uh, we are the market. We're engaging in a kind of you know, social entrepreneurship. Well, it's, that's not the only... Libertarian movement might not be the only kind of movement worth engaging in. Um, uh, once you think that uh, social goals can be promoted not just by, uh, by the market automatically doing things, although that certainly is, you know, thank goodness for the market, that certainly is one thing it does, one clang from there. <laughs> um, but also, the, um, uh, if you think it makes sense to try and organize people to promote libertarian values, it makes also makes sense to organize people to try and promote other kinds of values that you might think are in some sort of interesting connection in one or another of these kinds of thickness uh, with libertarian values. And uh, that's why I think it makes sense for uh, libertarians to worry about things like uh, uh, like racial discrimination or gender discrimination or people being pushed around on the job. A lot of libertarians feel reluctant to worry about those things because they think that either they think, oh, well, that's what left-wing statists worry about, um, uh, to which the answer is, well, you're not going to let them determine your agenda, are you? Um, or they worry, well, that means that we think that there's market failure. But I don't think it means there's market failure. Uh, you know, suppose you know, the market by itself can't guarantee a good result. Suppose we had a free market tomorrow and we all just committed suicide, which we could do. They would say, oh, we tried a free market and there were bad, or they tried a free market and there were bad results. Well, you know, well, uh, how good the results are depends not only on what you're free to do, but what you do with your freedom to do things. And so uh, the fact that uh, there are evils that might not just pop out of existence if you get rid of statism. I don't think that's any sort of you know, critique of the market. Uh, it's, not as though, it's not as though we're saying that the state methods of combating these evils are, are uh, you know, especially effective or, or useful. So that's, uh, that's my brief for uh, trying to uh, promote a package of libertarianism with other values. Questions? Yes. I uh, just wanted to follow up on your point on, on activist market entrepreneurship and uh, ask you a question about what I think is the weakness of the modern libertarian movement in that it doesn't see unity between political, economic, and virtue and or uh, falls into the error that, that we discussed about country libertarians, especially not seeing kind of the unity of virtue and the utilitarian force in it combined. And also, it's unimportant or seemingly uninterest in uh, some some libertarians, such as uh, Emerson and Thoreau, who emphasize virtue as a part of a larger rights package. All right. So um, the question is, uh, why might it be that? Uh so many libertarians don't uh, see things in terms of this kind of unity of virtue or unity of some values with others, and don't specifically uh, lay more stress on people like Emerson and Thoreau, who saw virtue as part of uh, as part of the whole package. Um, 
Well, you know, I don't have any sort of detailed sociological thesis to offer here, but um, I can see some, uh, you know, often uh, you know, mistakes, and obviously I think it's a mistake, often mistakes can be motivated by reaction against, uh, against things that are quite legitimate to react against. So, um, uh, you know, given that you know some of these, um, you know some of these values I'm talking about about you know being concerned about uh, you know, uh, race and patriarchy and and uh, the workers and so forth have been you know so long associated in people's minds with the status left and with you know with authoritarian state solutions to these problems. You can see why, for many libertarians, as soon as you hear anything that sounds like that, you just have this natural reaction of, ugh. Um, uh, also, I think, um, uh, as opposed to sort of the specific content of the values, I think a lot of, a lot of libertarians had a kind of reaction against uh, the Randians. Because the Randians, I think, they don't make this mistake. I think many Randians make other mistakes. But they tend not to make this mistake of separating liberty from other values. They do want liberty to be sort of incorporated into other values, but because many Randians you know, have sort of a very specific set of values and are very dogmatic about uh, insisting that uh, you're just a whim worshiper if you don't sign on to the whole package, that a lot of libertarians have sort of reaction against that. Say, oh no, we don't want any more of that. We want to, you know, we don't want uh, to be told that we're not allowed to advocate uh, uh, liberty unless, uh, uh, you know, unless we. Uh, you know, unless we prefer Mickey Spillane to Emil Zola or something. Um, uh, so I think that's part of it, too. Um, you know, in the 19th century, libertarians were often much more associated with, with um, you know, some of the, sort of the lefty values, but the rise of, of state socialism, both in the form of you know, Soviet socialism abroad and then various kinds of, well, really fascist, but often described as socialist sort of New Deal type stuff, uh, at home, sort of drove libertarians and conservatives into uh, an alliance, and so I think um, that sometimes explains why uh, uh, why libertarians had sort of a reaction against the lefty values, and then uh, a lot of libertarians had sort of reaction against the conservative values too. Is that uh, alliance frayed apart, and so they you know, saw themselves sort of breaking away from uh, all this bad stuff? But of course, some of it's bad, and some of it isn't. Actually, just a follow-up point, and then I'll take a question. Do you think that will harm the libertarian position if we don't start to see this more of a unity of virtues and kind of take what I think is Reason Magazine's kind of libertine attitude as being the true libertarianism? Uh, so the question is, um, will it harm uh, libertarianism if we don't uh, try and unify it with other values, and then, and the, what exactly? I couldn't tell whether you you were for or against the reason thing. Well, I think that has a tendency to be reason's problem, is it mm -hmm. tends to see libertine action as being a, a symbol of or a, an acceptance of libertarianism, and I have a tendency to think that they would have a, would see somebody like Madonna as being a more of a promoter of libertarianism. Than somebody like uh, Thoreau, who could be very moralistic, mm. and um, but again, I I think again he, he sees more of a unity, 
I'm just see, I'm just wondering how much do you think that will keep our views of libertarianism from becoming more popular? How deadly is it to the struggle for it? Okay, so the um, the question is, is partly how much what uh, how harmful might it be to um, uh, to libertarianism to um, associate it uh, to fail to associate it with sort of a, a unity of virtue, and then there's the question specifically about reason, um, whether reason having a kind of a, a libertine attitude toward libertarianism and uh, trying to think that sort of genuine generally uh, libertine values are more supportive of libertarianism, so they would tend to see Madonna as a more libertarian uh, figure than, uh, than a stern moralist like Thoreau. Um, well, the reason thing is, is complicated um, because uh, anyway, I don't think either, you know, either uh, you know, emphasis on libertinism or emphasis on anti-libertinism is either, either of those is exactly uh, the sort of libertarianism I most like to see. Um, but yeah, reason, uh, you know, reason's version of libertarianism is often pretty watered down. But um, I think one of the main things is uh, that just in terms of trying to, you know, if you just leave aside the question of what's, you know, what's right, just think in terms of trying to uh, convince people, a lot of people think that, uh, a lot of people's main objection to libertarianism is that we don't care about the poor. We don't care about these non-state forms of oppression. We deny their existence. Or we say, so what if they exist? It's fine, whatever. And I think that that, uh, you know, just a pure, purely on, on strategic grounds, if nothing else, I think that hurts us, uh, I think that hurts us a lot. Now, I've been told when I push my sort of a lefty libertarian line, a lot of people say to me, yeah, well, you know, to, to the extent that that's really strategic, uh, you know, maybe if you think the values are genuine values, go ahead and embrace them, which I do. But to the extent that it's purely strategic, it's hopeless, people tell me. Is that, you know, the leftists don't, are always going to hate you no matter what you advocate. Um, uh, which the answer is that I, you know, I think through experience it's not true. I've, uh, a lot of people I've talked to who had a you know, fairly negative attitude toward libertarianism have a much more positive attitude toward it now once I, you know, I give them the the left lib song and dance. Uh, so Disney, even on purely strategic grounds, I think it's uh, more effective than people think. But in the interest of devil's advocacy, let me give you let me give you the argument against an argument against the libertarianism that I haven't mentioned. And although I don't think it's right, I think it's worth thinking about. Uh, some people have said, look, the in fact I think I've given this argument at some point in the past in some other context without thinking about its full implications. Um, some people have said, look. One reason that the libertarian movements have often failed in the past is that they bundled libertarianism together with a bunch of other goals, and then they're always tempted to sacrifice libertarianism if they thought they could promote some of these other goals. And if all you care about is libertarianism, and you're not focusing on all these other goals, then it's much harder to tempt you away from them. Um, you know, so there were, I mean, Spencer, for example, thinks that uh, a danger of traditional liberalism was it was focused not just on on liberty, but it was focused on helping uh, the masses. And that was why they adopted these various liberal measures, was to help the masses. And they start thinking about helping the masses as being their goal, and so then the, the liberty part drops out, and, now, and then they start adopting uh, uh, government mechanisms of helping the masses. That was, uh, that was part of Spencer's diagnosis as to how liberalism moved from a libertarian movement to a status movement. 
So that's a kind of argument for thin libertarianism, which is that you're in danger of losing uh, the goal if you lump it with other goals. What I would say to that is, well, first of all, um, you know, if you think the other goals are important too, you know, that would be, you know, if that's a reason to dump the other goals, it would be an equally good reason to dump libertarianism. You say, you know, libertarianism might distract you from these other goals. Well, if you think they're all worth uh, promoting, then you should try to promote all of them and just be aware of the danger that you might end up focusing on some of them and forget the others and forget the ways in which you think that they, uh, they go together. Um, but, you know, if they're two good things, there might be a danger that in pursuing one, you'll forget about the other one. But it doesn't change the fact that they're both good things, and therefore you should you know, try and keep in mind that they're both worth promoting. Yeah? Uh, what would you say to this argument is kind of poorly formed and not my opinion, but I can see it being made that like, uh, kind of radical individualism is at least a uh, round thickness reason for libertarianism, probably an application thickness. And so that while there may be you know, forms of sexism, racism, you know, worker oppression that banding together in groups to come that be, you know, this running like this, you find like yeah, so here's a, uh, a possible objection some could have. They could say, look, one of the values that, although not strictly entailed by libertarianism, is going to be related to it through probably application thickness and instrumental thickness and grounds thickness, is something like radical individualism. Yeah, you know, for debate on exactly what radical individualism is, but in some sense of radical individualism, you might think that's a sort of value that needs to be uh, you know, part of what libertarians are promoting. But you might think, well, some of these other sort of left libertarian uh, things, like combating racism and sexism and uh, bossism and so forth, might involve certain kinds of involvement in collective action and interest group politics, whether on racial or gender or class lines in ways that you might think are at least potentially in conflict or in tension with the radical individualism. You start thinking of yourself primarily as a member of a certain kind of group rather than as an individual. You start identifying your interests with a collective and something isn't that uh, a danger. Well, I, I certainly I do agree that something like radical individualism uh, is an important part of the libertarian package. Now, of course, that phrase can mean different things. And uh, you know, certainly, I'm defending the, a version of radical individualism that thinks that other people's interests are incorporated into your own. So it's certainly not what some people might mean by radical individualism, but I'm happy to call it that. Um, and that certainly means that there is a possible danger in certain kinds of, of collective action. But I certainly don't think that it, that, that it rules them out. These are reasons for. Uh, you know, these are reasons for uh, for caution and vigilance rather than reasons for uh, avoidance. I mean, this is a wonderful line from Foucault, who's a person interesting to talk about in Left Libertarian Connections. Um, but Foucault, uh, someone was interviewing Foucault and said, you know, Foucault's talking about all these different power relations in society and so forth. And someone said to him, well, you've got a very pessimistic view of society, Foucault. You think that everything is bad. And Foucault's answer was, no, I don't think everything is bad. I think everything is dangerous. Uh, which is an interesting answer. And so the idea is, it's an interesting distinction. If something is bad, that just means, you know, don't do it. And you might think, well, something's either good or bad. If it's good, then it's fine to do it, no problem, no worries. If it's bad, then stay away from it. But there may be things that are dangerous, meaning 
it's not necessarily the case that you shouldn't do them, because it might be the case that you know, not doing them would be dangerous too. It just might be that there are certain ways in which you have to be cautious. Certain things involve certain dangers, and maybe not doing them would involve different dangers, and you just have to pay attention. Yeah? All right, so the question is, should we think of oppression in terms of being able to choose freely, which is the way libertarians often think about it, or should we think about it in terms of the number of options you have, so that a poor person would be you know, more oppressed than a rich one or less free than uh, a rich one, as many left-wing statists think about it? Well, again, I want to distinguish different senses of oppression. Um, I think that if, uh, if your options are limited... Uh, not just by you know sort of natural facts, but by various sorts of systematic social uh, relations. Um, I think that counts as a form of oppression, but it's a different kind of oppression from the specific kind that's rights violating. Um, now, not every case where your options are fewer is a is a form of oppression, but if the options are fewer because I mean, there's this example um, uh, from. Uh, uh, Marilyn Fry of uh, the, which gives this birdcage example, where um, where it's no one bar of the cage that stops the bird from getting out, but it's all the bars together. So likewise, you could say there'd be, you know, the, it might not, discrimination might not be a serious problem if, say, just a few oddball people practiced it. You know, suppose that there's one person somewhere who who discriminates against people with an even number of freckles on their face and won't hire anyone with an even number of freckles, but they hire people with odd number of freckles. And we found out this person existed, we wouldn't be terribly worried about this regarded as a serious social problem. But if this becomes sort of a pervasive pattern, then people are systematically disadvantaged by it in a way that is not unjust. It's not rights violating, but nevertheless, it's a, you know, it's a bad thing. Uh, it would be better if you know, we could do things to uh, prevent this. Free markets certainly give incentives to prevent it. Uh, they don't sort of magically prevent it, but they do tend to give, uh, you know, make it economically costly for people to engage in discrimination, which suggests there's likely to be less of it. But nevertheless, you know, people can be willing to pay the costs, and so you might want to do other things to make it even more costly, without, again, without using force. Yeah? Oh. Uh, Looking at liberalism since the middle of the 19th century, there's a progression downward in human behavior. And that's because the, the liberals have become pseudo-liberal. A pseudo-liberal is, is, is just the, I mean, he's a phony liberal. And the, uh, the, one of the definitions of Catholic is liberal. In other words, the considering all things in order to make a judgment overall. <clears throat> and this is a this is Catholic. I mean not, not, I mean that's what Catholic means. Considering all things. But these people constant they have first of all they're 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 poorly educated. Secondly, 
they take what they, it, it, it's, it's infinitely better to learn a few things well and truly than to learn many things badly. And that's what these liberals have, have been doing for a year. Um, yeah, so the point is that, um, uh, that from the movement from the 19th uh, century through the 20th and on into our own, uh, there's been a decline in liberalism. Yes, I certainly uh, agree with that. I mean, the classical liberals were much more libertarian, and current ones want much more state intervention. Um, I wasn't sure whether you, whether um, Catholic with a small c was something you were advocating or something you were against. Which was it? Well, I mean, Catholic. Well, the definition of Catholic with a small c. In other words, the, the sense of Catholic is all in. All embracing, and they, the liberals, they're, they're they a true liberal is all, he embraces everything and, and he thinks deeply about it. Then he comes to a conclusion that's much more liable to be right than wrong. All right, so Catholic means Catholic means the same thing as dialectical, <laughs> in the sense I was talking about earlier of um, Catholic meaning a dialectical meaning. Uh, refusing to simply consider a few things ripped from their context, but considering them in their relationship to the total context. No, yeah. no, no. I don't learn. I don't quite understand. What, you can't take things from their context. Right. Otherwise, then you stop thinking. Exactly. Yeah. So the I, I, when I'm talking about dialectical. I think the the dialectical approach advocates viewing things in their context rather than ripping yeah, them right. out. Yeah. So dialectical Catholicism. Um, Fiskevara's article on dialectics and a couple, a little bit of philosophy to it. I, you know, it's, it seems to be like I've pushed forward with very kind of leftist con, you know, thing, coming from Hegel and Marx, but it seems like it could equally lead to a kind of conservative thing of time and place, and you can't have too much radical reform because, you know, you can't escape either essential confines of human nature or just the constraints that time and place impose. And, so I think it's definitely important, you know, that libertarians don't be atomistic utopians, but also I think it, you know, can really undermine the kind of radical program that's proposed. Yeah. So the oh, that's a that's a very nice point. The um, the question is, uh, does the sort of Chris Cabrera dialectical approach necessarily lead to left libertarianism, or might it lead to something very conservative where you? Uh, you talk about the sort of the groundedness of things in specific time and place and specific cultural context, and that might lead to the view that you should limit the amount of radical change you're uh, you're asking for, and might that lead to blunting the edge of of uh, radicalism? Yeah, and I think that's that's right. I think it's a legitimate worry. Although obviously, I think that the you know the right way to work it out won't have that upshot. I mean, certainly it's true that uh, you know. You have to take account of these contextual things, and certain kinds of programs for radical reform uh, would be silly. Um, you know, if there were, you know, there's a little question of if there's a button on here that would abolish the government, would I push it? Well, I need more information. If it just makes the existing government go away, but everyone stay around with their existing preferences, we'd have a new government very quickly, and who knows what it would be like. Uh, you know, I want the button to make make it go away and stay away. Um, <laughs> And even then, I might want more information. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, so it's certainly true that um, uh, that there are limitations on you know, dialectical, contextual sorts of limitations on the kind of radical reform. But yeah, I agree that it, I don't think it does you know, require us to uh, 
you know, to just sort of resign ourselves to existing things because I think that um, you know, we should, you know, we should work to overcome uh, existing cultural problems as well as we can. And we know, you know we can't achieve it, achieve it overnight, but that's not a reason for trying to do less than we can. And there's the line from uh, William Lloyd Garrison that Rothbard liked to quote that gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. And people say we shouldn't agitate for these changes right now, you should do it gradually. He says, well, you know, it's probably going to be gradual, but I should agitate right now. And I think we are out of time. So, see you this afternoon.